0: So I think that ability to move uh, very quickly and and have that agility and and iterate and continually improve is actually almost like sort of the secret sauce. That's the main reason that UP will be competitive against the incumbent banks is because they just can't keep up with us.
1: welcome along to People Building Businesses, the brand new podcast from YBF Ventures. My name is Jason Lim. I'm the chief of staff here at YBF, and over the next few months, we'll be getting to the bottom of how companies grow by talking to the people that are actually doing it. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to People Building Businesses in all the usual places, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Our guest on the podcast today is Dominic Pim. Dom is the co-founder of Up!, Australia's first digital bank, which now has over 50,000 accounts and 30,000 customers since launching late last year We'll talk about how it's grown so rapidly in this episode. We have a lot to talk about. So let's get into it Welcome to the podcast Dom. No
0: worries at all. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. It's great.
1: And uh, you know a lot of people um, Find you an elusive founder You're always in the trenches and building your product and a lot of people know you for your various financial technology companies, but what I'd first like to understand is I want to get to know more about Dom Pim, the person. Where did you grow up? What were some of the influ- early influences in your
0: life? And how did you end up in technology? Yes, yeah, probably it's a good place to start, I suppose. Uh, well, I grew up in Melbourne, uh, out in the um, southeastern suburbs. And probably, I guess, the early formation of my interest in companies and, and entrepreneur, being an entrepreneur, that sort of stuff, when we were teenagers, we started our own businesses um, just for fun, you okay. know? and it started as just the usual sort of thing. I, th- I think it it's indicative of, um, of of your interest in business. But you know, we did car washing, and we did what we used to call bobber jobs, where we go door to door and do jobs, uh, you know, for people for a dollar and stuff. Yeah, you know, got a job at McDonald's and uh, worked in a printing factory, and then started my own printing company and wow. all, all this stuff. But very quickly, we got into design, you know, graphic design, multimedia, um, and then uh, when I, I was actually very late to get into tech, so a couple of my mates were. Uh, software developers or gamers, and they're always on the computer and stuff. Uh, but I actually didn't buy my first computer until I was like 16. Okay. Um, even though we had one computer at school, I remember, uh, in primary school that was on a trolley. It was like an Apple IIe, and they used to roll it around to the classrooms and stuff. And then when we were in high school, we had a computer room, um, but it was all these old Acorn computers, and we used to like use Logo and de- develop these um, uh, sort of little applications and things. So okay. when I bought my own computer – then I started getting into programming, you know, software development, but also I was very passionate about graphic design and multimedia. So um, so probably in my late teens, and then I went off to university and got a real job and, and all that stuff. My first job was actually, my first real job was with SAP. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the time, they were the world's largest sort of inter-enterprise um, software company or ERP company. Yep. Um, and I very quickly uh, sort of moved around within the, the ranks as a software developer uh, and then ended up in Singapore in a subsidiary. Uh, And our responsibility was for 13 countries across Asia to build the new, what they now call NetWeaver, but the new uh, sort of technology platform for SAP. When I joined, I was like the fourth or fifth employee. Wow! And then we grew in two and a half years to two and a half thousand people. And I ended up in Palo Alto and like the valley and all that sort of stuff. That's great. Um, but, But that was like a baptism of fire um, because I got to work with uh, 47 of the Fortune 500 companies. Uh, we got to travel all over the world and all this stuff. And I started that when I was 19. Wow. Um, so I was the youngest employee of SAP ever. Early days. Yeah. And then by the time I was sort of 25, 26, um, I, I'd done all sorts of amazing things in software or sort of all over the world. And that sort of gave me my foundation. And I guess the passion and curiosity to do things differently. And where did that entrepreneur spirit and um, that
1: curiosity come from?
0: I think it sort of comes from your yeah, upbringing. Like, uh, it, it, f- f- like I, I look at my dad. He was, uh, he, like, I, I sort of look at my dad as a role model, but I, I look at him as the opposite. Like, you know, okay, so, so, yep. so, you know, so, so he wasn't an entrepreneur. No, he wasn't very. I mean, he was in a way, but he he, he sort of he had a, his sort of corporate job. And he'd go to his job every day and and, and he was the managing director of an international steel company, okay. you know. Yep. Um, and it was – it's a sort of, I guess, lackluster sort of industry and it was very particular. But you drive every day to your job. You work sort of nine to five or as it turned out sort of maybe six till nine or, you know, yep, like whatever. Sure. Um, and, and I didn't get to see a lot of my dad. Um, mm. But he was a really good sort of handyman around the house and he was uh, very interested in um, – Technology and things like that. I used to like buy things out of the trading post and sort of fix them up. Very good with his hands. Yep. So I think that the creativity and the curiosity probably comes from your parents. I think, and, yeah. And sort okay. of your upbringing, uh, but I think the entrepreneurial spirit and the desire to sort of have a crack at things and and fail or, or succeed. Okay. Um, is something that. Anybody can do, Mm. you just have to have kind of the confidence and the gumption to sort of um, have a crack at it. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. And I guess that leads me to my
1: next question. How in the world did you go from working in such a large company like SAP with such
0: large responsibilities to starting your first company, Clear Interactive? Uh, Well, I actually had quite a few companies even before Clear. Okay, yeah. But but, uh, Clear is, uh, I guess, the start of the journey with my current business partner. So we've been business partners for about 12 years. Wow, yeah. um, And we've had a few different companies along the way. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, actually, I, so I used to live in Singapore. I lived sort of in the UK and Singapore, Japan, the US, sort of all over the place. Yeah, sure. But, um, uh, but when we were living in Singapore, we are there for a couple of, maybe two and a half years. And then we decided we wanted to sort of move back to Australia. Yeah. Um, and you know, the usual sort of buy a farm, settle down, have kids, you know, I don't know that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, because we sort of had enough of, 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 I guess the corporate world and all the software development, and everything we we're doing in Silicon Valley, blah, blah, blah. So it was like come back to Australia and just chill out. But I ended up setting up a sort of development team here with SAP. And then I decided I'd go and start my own company. So okay. I started my own company and set up my own team and, and that sort of stuff. And then I met my current business partner, Tomo, and we started Clear. Um, originally, it was like, I guess, a, a technology, a sort of software company just to build cool stuff. Yep. Um, but then we ended up one of our investors uh, sort of redirected us or suggested to us that we should look at the commodities um, you know the grains industry particularly because sure, there yeah. was sort of deregulation of the of the single desk, the AWB scandal, and all that oil for wheat and all that sort of stuff, and so and so we built. Really, the world's first grain exchange. Okay, uh, wow. And now, uh, and now, you know, we had to get patents and build all this technology and put a team together. And at the time, uh, back in those days, like I think it was two thousand and seven, maybe we started. Um, uh, you know, Ruby on Rails had just sort of started to become a thing and everything. And one of our guys was one of the early contributors to Ruby back back then. It was with thirty seven signals, which was Basecamp. Yep. Um, and, and and so uh, and so we decided to go down that path. So we used all this new technology and we built the sort of this grain exchange and everything. And then we sold the company. Um, and that was the, the start of building an awesome, amazing team. Some of which those people still work for us today. Yep. Um, you that's know, like, yeah, that's fantastic. ten yeah. or twelve years later. Wow, you know. that's that's, and it's sort of like the dream story
1: for a lot of startups as well, because it only took you less than two years to be acquired by the New Zealand Exchange. I'm sure there's lots of work before that, but it looks like from uh, it the was, outside, it, it was, it was, it was sixteen time.
0: months from starting to acquisition. We, yep. like it, it actually was a horrible. Uh, acquisition it was yep. a horrible sale there was a huge cultural clash between us as sort of a startup business I think our biggest we were 32 people uh, and they were an organization of obviously hundreds but also sort of I guess the you know the regulator of the market in New Zealand for energy and for the stock exchange and so on and the sale actually didn't go very well okay and, uh, but but it's one of those things that I sort of chalk up to uh, the school of hard knocks and 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 learning uh, through experience okay. so when I said earlier about sort of failures and successes um, that business itself was a successful business in the sense that at one point, probably even now today, about two-thirds of Aussie farmers use that technology to sell their grain. Yep. Um, so it's, it's got large traction and, and, and adoption, but probably didn't make as much money as we would liked. And then the acquisition went really, really badly. Sure. Um, so for us, it was a learning experience. And what I often say to people is that um, through that experience, I learned a lot about uh, legals. Yep, <laughs> I sure. learned a lot about uh, our culture. Uh, about team and about people and the contribution that makes or can make to it to a startup business, um, and also I guess the the, the clash between large enterprises and regulated entities versus startups that can kind of do anything they like and that are small and friendly and that sort of stuff but they were definitely like learning experiences so that when we started our next company uh, we were much more conscious of um, uh, you know what a bad outcome would be and therefore how do you actually orchestrate a good outcome yeah Um, so i think that's like part of being a successful entrepreneur or a successful business person um, is having those sort of failures along the way yep Um, so the people that we met and the people that we employed um, and the partners that we made uh, you know throughout those years, extraordinary. Like we still deal with those people today. We employ some of those people, wow. we work with some of those people in the industry and so on. Um, but the actual business itself, uh, you know for all intents and purposes was a failure. yep. and and your first product out of ferocia was pin payments. Well, uh, no, it was even before that. So, okay. actually, so so PIN Pin is a separate, it's actually separate from Ferocia. Oh, got it. Uh, so, I still sit on the board and I'm still a shareholder and all that sort of stuff. But I, but I did PIN for the first um, uh, sort of maybe uh, year or, or two of its existence. Uh, and I was working there for, before we started Ferocia. Um, so, I'd already been in business with with Tomo, my current business partner sure, yeah. with, with, with Clear. Yep. Then we kind of had a little bit of a break after the NZX acquisition and things didn't work out. I started PIN and that went on to sort of some success. And then we started Ferocia very quickly thereafter. Yep. Um, so, for me, I ended up being sort of stretched between a bunch of different things. I actually decided um, to work with Tomo and to focus on uh, Ferocia full-time, yep. and that's what I do for a living. So, I do get involved in or invest in or sit on boards or whatever other companies, but but really, Ferocia is our baby. It's, a, it's our… Yeah, um, absolutely. It's the culmination of 20 years of experience… Um, in creating businesses and creating products. Yep. So so that's now what I do, and 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 now I don't know. I think Pin's been around for eight or nine years or whatever, and Pin is um, you know very successful in its own right. It is. But yeah. my involvement in it now is is sort of I guess limited to sitting on the board. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but
1: you know, so how did you make that decision to go from what was you know by all accounts a very successful company to then
0: starting Ferocia? What was the uh, the switch? Yeah, I think uh, it's an interesting question. I mean, nobody asked me this level of questions uh, in previous conversations, so it's okay, quite, I guess, good, it's yeah. quite um, I guess, it's quite insightful. It's a sort of uh, normally I, I like to talk about you know the company and the people and the team and everything. So obviously these questions are sort of more about me, and that, that's okay. Yeah. Uh, but 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 you know I have very strong relationships with my business partners in different businesses, but particularly Tomo and I. Um, have built an affinity with each other. So Tomo has eight kids um, Mm. and we started the business Clear together. We actually worked with each other in in a prior business before that. Um, and uh, and we've developed a very close working relationship and I think what I put it down to is our um, uh, sort of our moral compass is aligned sure. we have very different ways of doing things and he's 20 years older than me yep. uh, so he has even more experience and, and sort of he looks after things like strategy and negotiations and, and things like this whereas I'm sort of in traditionally been more product focused and more operationally focused um, and and that sort of entrepreneurial vision or spirit um, and 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 so I, I see us as kind of yin and yang okay and so and so Tomo and I, form this partnership where we have all the requisite skills that you need to run a business. um, and, uh, and, And because that bond, I guess, was so strong, While Tomo was sort of having a break and spending time with his family and renovating his house and that sort of stuff, and I was off doing some of the stuff with Pin or whatever, we actually, I remember very clearly sitting in his kitchen um, and talking about, well, what are we going to do next? Because clearly we have this sort of relationship, this bond that we want to work together. So we said, well, you know, we should start this new company. So obviously it wasn't called Ferocia then. It just didn't have a name. Uh, But it was really just me and Tomo, just the two of us sitting around his kitchen table sort of plotting, well, what are we going to do next? Wow. And actually what we wanted to do at the time was we wanted to, I had a passion for share market trading and share market investing. So we actually wanted to build um, technology for sort of the Comsex or the E-Trades or whatever. And we had worked with a whole bunch of the different banks from, I don't know, Westpac and NAB and, ComBank and ANZ and, and Bank of Queensland uh, and a bunch of others um, to sort of uh, look at the share market and the share trading platforms. And back then, like let's say that was 10 years ago or 12 years ago, um, really the only player in the market was ComSec. Okay, right, sure. Um, there was there was another player called um, InvestorWeb, uh, which was a public company, but they would sort of acquired, I think, 14 or 17 other um, online brokers in Australia. And so pretty much NAB and Westpac ran uh, InvestorWeb technology. Got it. Com- it. ComBank ran ComSec. And yep. ANZ ran E-Trade, right? Yep. And so they were the sort of the incumbents. And we came along and said, you know, this could be better. It could be more awesome. And that was our real sort of idea originally was how do we uh, build technology to help in the share market game. And essentially, through conversations with Comsec, we realized pretty quickly that those guys were sort of set in their ways. And then there was an acquisition where Comsec actually bought IWL. And so Commonwealth Bank owned Comsec but they also owned the platforms that NAB and Westpac were running on. So the only other player left in the market was sort of ANZ and they partnered with with E-Trade. So so it was a really interesting time in sort of consolidation in the share market game. Sure, yeah. And and we started building technology and putting a little team together to build um, sort of some prototypes of how you could improve the customer experience to make share trading more accessible and easier for sort of mum and dad investors. And, of course, everyone loved it. Um, but as I said, one of our investors at the time said, could you do the same stuff you're doing around customer experience and around sort of technology for share trading? Could you do that for commodities? And, and, and he was the managing director of the largest grain trading company in the world. Wow. Um, so so, so suddenly we went, okay, well then let's do that for grain. But but anyway, back to the question. I think that the sort of I talk about me and Tom as being like the yin and the yang yep. um, is that we have different skill sets, but they're very complementary. Mm-hmm. And because we share that sort of moral compass and we both want to achieve sort of the same outcome. For other people, not just like for ourselves, but for our staff or for our family or for our friends or our partners or whatever it is, um, that that really attracted me to uh, to working with Tomo more. And then, literally, now it's ten years later or That's whatever fantastic. it is, and we're yeah. still and we're still doing it. So yeah. uh, it is pretty amazing. Like it's been an amazing journey, but I think also I've been surrounded by just amazing people.
1: Yeah, and um, probably let's dig deeper into that as well. If you had, if you had a piece of advice for someone looking for a co founder or working with their current co founder, how would you distill your relationship with tomo what do you think is the core reason for your success over the years and your ability to to stay together over the years um is there anything else that you could
0: share uh, well apart from like having this what we call sort of the moral compass or whatever yep. sort of having this alignment to achieve sort of let's say honest transparent and you know sort of outcomes that okay. sort of help help people sure um that, that's sort of our driving um or guiding light if you like if you like yep but i think it's also just um uh, the ability to compliment each other, but also um, uh, almost like argue or debate and, and, and not get upset. Okay. So, Tomo and I can have a very heated discussion about mm. something, whatever it might be, whatever the topic is. Um, and then, you know, we'll just go and get lunch and, 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 you know, we're just mates and then talking about our family holiday or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think that that ability to uh, be robust um, and, and have a contrary view. So like if two co-founders get together and they agree on everything and they both have the same skills and they both have the same sort of desires or outcomes, it's probably not as dynamic and as functional as two people that are so different. Yep. Like Tomo comes from a different background than me, um, you know, he's uh, obviously worked in financial, or it's not obvious, but it's obvious to me. Yep. He worked in financial sure. services for, for a long time, yep. but he also was, you know, an AFL football um, uh, player and then became an AFL football coach. Yep. Um, and in Victoria, that's a big deal. Um, yeah, you know, it is, yeah. uh, and so to, to be the coach of, uh, you know, the St Kilda footy club for, um, I don't normally talk about Tomo much. I normally let him talk about himself, but, <laughs> right. but, uh, but, you know, uh, to be a, a, a footy coach of the St Kilda footy club, but also all the different roles that he played over the years at the footy club. Um, you know, he, what he did essentially was change the culture of a club to help them win a grand final. And that's what he does at Ferocia is that he helps to build the culture and the team Um, for us to win the grand final. Now, for us winning the grand final is helping people live their lives and helping people with their banking and automation and and all that sort of stuff. It's it's sort of a different outcome. It's not like a a football trophy, Um, but it's actually the same goal. So because he has such a different background and I have the technology sort of software development background and the SAP experience and travel overseas and all that sort of stuff, you put those two things together, they're quite different. So sometimes Tomo will have a very strong view about one topic and I'll have a very strong view in the opposite direction. Sure. And we'll debate that out. We'll argue that. We'll fight that out. Um, And I think that the ability to agree to disagree and the ability to come to consensus or compromise um, and then to work together for the best outcome. Um, I, I mean, I think it's quite unique amongst co-founders. Absolutely,
1: and was yeah. that, was it like that from day one, or did both of you have to put conscious effort into building that kind
0: of relationship? Uh, it's a little bit serendipitous, I think. Like when we first met each other, I was uh, working at a uh, at an unlisted public company, okay, and our goal was to list that company. Um, and i was the md or whatever but i but i was young and that wasn't really like my experience so we were looking we stacked the board with all these famous sort of people or whatever that you know in that industry and then we were looking to do an ipo and so we're looking for a ceo or managing director to take over sort of from me and, and 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 somebody one of our sales people recommended that we catch up with tomo and in that first meeting that tomo and i had it wasn't like a job interview, it was like we were introduced by a mutual friend. Okay. And I think we spent seven hours like just chatting. Wow. Uh, and then I remember he took me to his house and introduced me to his wife and his kids and all this sort of stuff. And so right from the beginning, we just sort of hit it off. Yeah, right. Even though we're completely different people. And I think that, that the strength of that relationship and that personal bond um, translates really well into business. Okay. Uh, and if you can if you can run your business the way that you would run your family or mm. you could run your business in the way that you would want to um, – to help your staff. To, so so I'll give you an example, actually. Um, I, I, sometimes I go to um, uh, back to the universities and and, and do like a, maybe a guest appearance or speak to the kids and talk about, you know, how to be an entrepreneur, you know, whatever. And I got invited. I used to go to a bunch of different universities, but one of them was RMIT, and I got yeah. invited back to RMIT. And I went in there and I met um, some of the people that I work with now who, who sort of were also graduates from RMIT. Um, and everybody gets up as an entrepreneur and they present – their um, sort of story about their successful business, sure. and they talk about EBIT or EBITDA, yep. and they talk about um, you know ROI, yep. or they talk about multiples and equity and all this sort of bullshit. Sure, it's yep. all bullshit. Okay, and I don't I don't think that people understand what's important in life when they talk about that stuff. Right, um, those things are all outcomes. What's actually important, and at this particular presentation, I remember it quite fondly, is that I got up and I said, in our little business, which at the time was clear, in our little business, um, you know, we employ 32 people, whatever. We've had five marriages in the last three years. We've had four children that have been bought. Um, you know, we've had eight people buy a house. You know, like they're the things that actually matter. Yeah. Um, and at Ferocia, uh, you know, I, I saw a, a blog post from one of our staff. It's not published yet. But he was he was saying that uh, when he joined, we had two kids, like two people that had children in the office, apart from Tomo, like he's got heaps of kids. Um, but there were two new newborn babies, if you like. And then he said, now there's like a dozen. And that's what matters. Like what matters is people living their life and being able to have success in their family amongst their friends and things. And if you have that sort of culture, then whatever your startup or whatever your tech company or whatever your fintech or whatever it is, whatever your business is, it can actually succeed by the success of the people that are involved. So that's where Tomo's experience uh, beyond my years, like 20 years more than me, in working with people, in he has a large family, as a footy coach, all of those sort of things, yep. has made a real difference to the way that we think about people and we think about success. Yep, that's great. And the reason why, um, you know, I'm drilling so deep into this is because
1: often the most important ingredient in building a company is your relationship with your co-founder and like you said, the team. So yeah. moving on to the team, was the team's culture something that
0: you had to work really hard in creating or was it organic from day one? I think Tomo and I had a very, st- again, Tomo might be better to sort of um, talk directly to that, but, but um Tom and I had a very clear idea about the type of team that we wanted to build. Yep. And so the, actually the culture starts with recruitment. Um, you know, we we have a lot of long-term uh, employees and a lot of highly skilled employees. Probably I would say, even though it's a small team, so we have less than 30 people, yep. I'll, you know, maybe I'm just proud or whatever, but, I, but I, w- I would say that we have the best technology team in Australia. Yep. Um, and it feels like we have had for the last 10 years. Yep. Um, and the people that we employ, it's quite extraordinary. If you look at the, the makeup of a normal team, I'll go back to the recruitment piece in a minute. Yeah, sure. But if you look at the makeup of a normal sort of tech team, um, there's usually one or two real standout, you know, exceptional people. And then everybody else is sort of uh, a doer or, you know, whatever. Okay. In our team, every single person could be a CTO wow. or has been a CTO, you know, or whatever. It's a really super high caliber um, team with all these amazing people, but they're on the tools Doing the day-to-day stuff—that sort of, you know—I wouldn't like—they're all senior engineers. Okay, um, but they do whatever needs to be done. You know what you'd normally sort of fling at a junior engineer or whatever is—and so we do a lot of automation. Yep, and we do a lot of um, uh, sort of quality control of our of our of our developments, um, and we build software in a way with a really high-caliber team that we think is is quite awesome. Yep. Um, but but going back to the cultural piece, so so that all starts with recruitment. So the first person. That we recruited into the business um, was someone that had come recommended from one of our best previous employees, you okay. know, from, from another company. Yep. Um, and then the next person that we employed was actually one of our ex employees. Yep. Um, and he was working wow. with one of our business partners um, who had gone off and started another different business. So he was, so this is Marty Howell, he was the um, co founder of realestate.com.au. And he was um, one of our, um, our business partners at Clear. So he had his own new business, which has become CareMonkey now, which is an amazing success. Right. Yeah. Um, and his had one software developer at the time. And yep. that software developer had come from the Clear team. Um, wow. and, and and so then we talked to Marty and said, well, we, you know, this guy wants to come work with us at Ferocia. And because we had, you know, established relationship and everything. And so Marty ended up recruiting a bunch of other people. And 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 this guy, you know, Langers came from uh, that team over to Ferocia. And then the next person that we hired was, um, you know, Tommy, who... Tommy has worked now with me for fifteen years or more across uh, five different companies, Um, and 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 so uh, sort of we hire generally like almost like one degree of separation. Um, It 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 doesn't scale to like you know hundreds of people or anything, Um, but it means that we uh, we don't have to get resumes. We don't have to really interview people. We do, but I'm just saying we don't have to because we already know them. Like I've known Tommy. I hired Tommy out of university. Um, into one of my very early sort of software de- design companies. Um, and he's worked with me through five different companies now. And wow. he had a break where he went and headed up a team at, at, at Jetstar and, and helped them when they did, they, they sort of spun that out from Qantas and built all that. Um, so he spent a, a couple of years doing that. And then he came back as one of the very early participants at, at Ferocia. And then it just sort of grew from there. So like once Mike Mike Morris is a head of our uh, engineering, sort of a head of our tech, when, when Mike joined the team, um, he actually overheard us chatting. Uh, we were working uh, in Fitzroy. Yep. Uh, and we were in uh, sort of uh, with one of our um, mates who had his own company and we were working with him and Mike sort of overheard us chatting and said, hey, this would be cool. I'd love to go and do some banking stuff, whatever. And so he approached me and Tomo and then once Mike joined, Mike had worked at all these different companies around Melbourne and, and if you look at our team our team have worked at places like you know uh, Lonely Planet, Invado, Redbubble, it's, it's all those sort of you know those companies so once Mike sort of came along then all the other people from the other companies like The Conversation or Redbubble or whatever that had worked with him before or Lonely Planet or whatever you know those people then wanted to come and join the team so so we were able to grow a team fairly organically but fairly quickly Yep. Um, and the calibre of the people that joined the team meant that we had a lot of redundancy in the team so sure. people were had sort of backup for each other, but we also had a lot of trust um, and a lot of belief and faith. Yep. And then the way that Tomo has developed that is that, for example, we run a, um, it's an internal sort of thing to us, so we don't normally talk about it a lot, but we run a, a session once a month with Tomo where um, Tomo uh, sort of helps the team to understand who we are, um, like a footy coach would do, uh, and we look at the team culture and, and we look at how we can get better and how we can help each other to improve and all yep. that sort of stuff. And we do that every month and we've done that every month for as long as I can remember. Yep. Um, And so I think it's like one part was the recruitment piece, getting the sort of high quality people. And then the other part is then um, uh, understanding what's important to those people. So what's important to our team is the camaraderie amongst the team, um, you know, wanting to come to work uh, because you spend more time with your colleagues than you do your family. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, we have all these cool things, which are nowadays are pretty sort of more common, but we have things like, um, you know, we don't count people's leave, uh, we don't have working hours. Yep. Um, so people come and go as they like and all this stuff. And we just sort of trust everybody to get the job done, which creates an environment where people want to come to work. Yeah. Um, and so by creating that environment and then by checking ourselves on a monthly basis as to how we're tracking and how we're doing and everything, um, you start with a recruitment, you then focus on the things that are important, and then you actually... Uh, augment and grow that culture and improve that culture over time like nothing's ever good enough for us so if someone from the outside looked in they might go oh this is amazing I love what you guys have got this is a great team or whatever we're actually our, our biggest critics like we're, we're, we're so critical of ourselves we had a session the other day where we looked at um, amongst the whole team um, who in the team has respect for other people in the team Wow. you know who in the team uh, can sort of help each other uh, what can we help each other with how can we get better as people as well as you know in business yep. um, and those are the sort of things that Tomo has so much experience in that he can bring to our culture to help us develop and and continue to improve forever.
1: Yep. That's amazing. And Dom, that philosophy, that culture, the caliber of your team, that's really translated into what we're seeing now with Up. Yeah, um, it's sure. arguably got you know some of the, the, the best product design philosophy, uh, the driving force, North Star, whatever you call it. Um, so jumping into Up, Tell us more about it for the viewers that are listeners uh, that don't know much about it. Why did you start
0: Up and what drives your team to continue working with Up? Yeah, so um, I know we were talking then about history and different things that we've done or whatever, but there's a whole section that we missed, which is um, when Ferocious started, uh, we, we uh, you know, we ne- just like any company, we needed to make revenue and whatever. And it's just me and Tomo at the time. Um, and so we were working with a bunch of different organizations um, to try and find opportunities. Sure. Um, and companies, you know, big name companies like Optus and skilled um, RACV and so on and so forth. And we were sort of shopping around for what was it we could do and, and how could we sort of help um, people with technology and so on. Um, and we did that for a little while until we ended up meeting with Bendigo Bank. Okay. And then we met with Bendigo Bank and really the early discussions uh, with them were we wanted to raise some capital, uh, you know, the normal sort of things. And we've never raised capital for Ferocia. We're completely self-funded. But at the time we were having that conversation and like how yep. do we sort of scale the business and start hiring more people, whatever. And we were speaking to the managing director of Bendigo Bank at the time, uh, Mike Hurst, and he said um, they had been out to tender looking for a new internet mobile banking system okay. um, and is it something that you know we might be able to help with? And so we said, sh- cool, of course. Um, so, so we jumped in very quickly. We grabbed those people I was just talking about, all those people that I mentioned before, your Mikes, your Langers, your, um, uh, your Evs and, 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 uh, and Anson and these early people. We, we, we grabbed them and put together this sort of crack sort of team to build a proof of concept so that we could pitch for the mobile banking application at Bendigo Bank right, yep. so, like, right at the beginning of Ferocia. Um and that went really well and we obviously won the the, the project um, and so then we went on to build you know the fifth biggest banking platform in Australia we went yep. from 75,000 mobile users to over 750,000 users yeah like, it was it just went amazing and so because that went amazing um, uh, you know we were always encouraged by Bendigo and there's sort of unique partnership that we have between this big bank and this FinTech we, we, we were really encouraged um, by them to uh, look for other revenue um, uh, and, and and to grow the Ferocia business, but we ended up in Asia building a digital bank for ten countries. Wow! We ended up in uh, uh, Sydney working with one of the big four banks um, to build a digital bank for Australia, and we did that for about four and a half years. And those technologies never actually got into customers' hands. So when you ask about sort of what's the genesis of Up, that that's the history of Ferocia. Yep. But the frustration that we had over those sort of four and a half years, where we couldn't get this software out to the customer, we would have been we would have launched digital banks before. Monzo, Revolut, Starling, N26 and all these sort of guys even even existed if we hadn't been able to get that to customers, you know, like back in 2014 uh, or whatever. But we never were able to because we're working with these big incumbent banks that were just slow moving and have other priorities and all the rest of the normal things that you mentioned. So that frustration is actually what led to wanting to do up. And we said, you know, we just want to launch our own digital bank and it had already started happening in the UK, and we'd seen Bank Simple launch in the US, yep. uh, and then they got acquired by BBVA. Yeah, and yep. we went over to Barcelona, and we met with BBVA, and we, we were already close to the Simple guys and everything. So, so for us, we'd sort of seen the rest of the world getting their product to customers, and we were still struggling to do that with the big incumbent banks. And so we were talking to Bendigo about that issue, um, and, and and saying we're going to launch our own digital bank, but there was no restricted banking license back then. There was no way or easy way to start a bank in Australia. There was, Australia. Fintech there was no fintech sandbox. There was no fintech sandbox. There was none of that stuff yep. um, and so we were talking about doing that and you kind of need you know i've said it before but uh, you know your listeners might or um, viewers might not have heard it but but uh you kind of needed to start a digital bank 100 million dollars a banking yeah. license a core banking system you know, th- th- these are not easy things to come by no um and and, and so we were chatting the bendigo about that and then the regulatory changes happened in the uk and we saw maybe 40 At the time, it was 40, maybe it's 50 now, but we saw a whole bunch of new neo banks and digital challenger banks, whatever, launching in the UK because of the change in legislation. And then there were rumours that the legislation would change in Australia. So we were talking to Bendigo and Bendigo said, you know, we've got this long-term relationship. um, You already build our platform. um, uh, You know, is there an opportunity maybe for us to partner to deliver up to market? So we ended up taking a different route um, because there was no other route at the time. Yep. Uh, we ended up taking a different route, which was to partner with Bendigo, and they provide the ADI, the you know Australian Deposit Taking Institution license, you yep. know, the banking license, um, and they provide the licensed financial product, and and they had all the service and advice. That we wouldn't need to build ourselves um, around compliance, risk, security, all that sort of stuff that you can imagine you need to build a bank. Yep. So we were able to actually sort of get off the ground and get up and running fairly quickly. So we actually launched up uh, into production with um, Google Cloud Platform, GCP. GCP um, sort of when they first launched in Australia, but that was actually back in 2017. Not, not a lot of people know, but you know, we went to production and we just only the ferocious staff were using it, and then we got the Bendigo staff on, and then we got some family and friends, and then over the course of a year, we then uh, did a, uh, a a private beta and then we did a public beta um, and then we ended up with about 1500 people using up in that sort of first year wow um, and then we actually launched up in october 2018 after we'd already been going for a year since october 2017 um, so 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 that sort of genesis of up and the relationship with bendigo now we have this amazing collaboration we, we spent a lot of time you know more than a year probably closer to two years uh, with regulators with lawyers with the bank and everything to try and put together that structure very unique structure um, and at the time we thought perhaps it's uh, the first of its kind in the world uh, yep. we, we did find another similar co- company and fintech and bank in the UK so maybe it's one of a handful um, but it's a, it's a it's a very unique model then the restricted banking license was introduced and mm. obviously in May last year you know Vault got the first license yep and then after Christmas, uh, Zinju got the second license, uh, the restricted licenses, and then Volt have already progressed onto a full banking license. Um, and so while those guys still haven't launched their banking products, so Zinju have a sort of stored value card, whatever, they haven't they haven't launched their full banking products yet. So Zinju are working towards their full banking license. Yep. You know, Volt already have their full banking license, but haven't launched their solution yet. We were already able to launch in 2017 yep. privately, and then publicly in 2018. And now we've found that. Um, uh, If you look at these competing models to launch a digital bank in Australia, uh, we've actually seen obviously Revolut have partnered with ANZ. We've had Doe partner with regional Australia banks. So just amongst those ourselves, Up, Revolut and and Doe, there's three partnering with ADIs. And we know of two others that are taking that same sort of path but haven't announced yet. Um, and we know that APRA are getting a lot of applications for restricted ADIs. They, they said publicly at some conferences that they get approached about one, one a week. Yep, wow. um, but only two have received it so far. So, so I would say at the moment, the whole market is in this moment of innovation, this moment of flux, this moment of uh, sort of increased competition and opportunity. Yep. Uh, and that's why we're seeing international players like Revolut launching, but we're also seeing um, domestic players like Doe and Pelican and, um, uh, and obviously Zinja and Volt and uh, all the other players. I can't think of their names. Archer yep. is another one in Melbourne so so all these um, new players coming along and they're either going to apply for a banking license or they're going to partner with an incumbent bank yep. um, and we're going to see that model playing out over the coming years in the meanwhile Up is the only uh, Neo slash challenger bank or whatever to launch in Australia um, that has real banking product in market yep. today and could you explain what the difference is between Up and what's <laughs> what's currently out there yeah so I guess um, uh, you know obviously there's the big four banks that, that have 85% market share there's about 55 so if you look at the reported if you look at the apra reports that get released of uh, uh, you know there's regulatory requirements around reporting and all the banks in australia so there's there's four big banks that have 85% market share. Yeah. There's half a dozen mid-tier banks from obviously Bendigo, ING, Macquarie, Bank of Queensland, I'm going to forget some, Suncorp, you know. Um, but, but there's a whole bunch of mid-tiers and then there's like 100 credit unions, building societies, whatever. So, so altogether, I think I believe there's over 450 sort of ADIs in Australia. Yep. But they range from sort of PayPal with a payments uh, license to uh, Commonwealth Bank, you know, with a, a full banking license or whatever. Yep. Um, so there's already all that competition. So with 55 million accounts in Australia and only 18 million adults, the average adult in Australia has, you know, on average, three bank few accounts banks, already. Yep. Right. So so it's a completely solved problem. Sure. Uh, banking is something where most people don't think I want a new bank or I'd love to change banks or I want if there's a better option out there or whatever. Um, so so it's actually a completely saturated market and quite a difficult market to sort of launch into. Okay. Um, and, and then what we see is maybe three types of competition. So they're the incumbents I've just talked about, right? Yep. But then there's probably three types of competition. There's the new uh, sort of fintech um, uh, players that are coming to the market, so ourselves or Vault yep. or the new know, banks. whoever else. Yeah, the new banks that are yep. coming along. And then there's the international players. And the international players are, you know, Atom or uh, Starling or Revolut or whoever that are um, going to launch in Australia. And you we know, sort of said a soft launch from Revolut already. Yep. Um, and then um, and then there's, uh, so I guess what I would call sort of these um, uh, substitutes. Yep. And the substitutes are that you can already use an account with, I don't know, Zinja or Spriggy or, um, you know, you can already use a stored value card or you can get sort of financial services from Non-regulated financial service companies, if you know what I mean. Sure, yeah, um, uh, and even to the point of huge public companies like Afterpay. Like Afterpay, obviously it's regulated in a sort of a different way, but they're not operating under the banking license. They're not offering credit products. Um, you know, they're offering their own uh, uh, sort of products in a, in a different way than a traditional bank. So, yep. so I see the substitutes as being sort of a bunch of of new players and competitors. I see these new challenger neo digital banks as competitors, and then the incumbents. So mm. it's actually not only just a saturated market, but it's really highly competitive yep. market. So why should someone choose up over? All these other solutions what are you doing differently and what are what's so special about up I think uh, there's a bunch of things but uh, but you know up at the moment, is the only, uh, or the first of the new sort of um, neo banks, and you could argue. Just by the way, I forgot to mention, like there's some great options in the Australian market, like ING. I forgot to mention them. Like yeah. ING would be the best incumbent bank, you know, in Australia. U uh, Bank and Me Bank and others who call themselves digital banks, but are kind of more traditional banks. Mm. Um, but you know, the, but they've all launched, uh, you know, in the last sort of decade. Then they're, they're, they're not like part of this next generation. Sure. Yeah. So so people often say is up the first digital bank in Australia, and we often slip into that and say that. But really, the way we like to describe it as the first next generation uh, digital bank because sure. because there's a new sort of cohort that are now launching with these restricted licenses and these new challenges. But there are the old guard, you know, the INGs, the U-banks, the MEs, and so on. Um, and, and and I think that um, the difference between those uh, incumbent players and the new players is customer experience yep. is ability to sign up in less than three minutes wow. uh, is uh, the branding and the association so you're wearing an up pin and that's lovely I am that's, yeah. that's nice I appreciate that um, I, I ran out of t-shirts today I'd normally wear my up <laughs> t-shirt if I'm on a podcast or something um, but but normally um, uh, you wouldn't expect someone to walk around in a ComBank or a nab t-shirt or something like this no right? you wouldn't yeah. but, but people actually have a passion and a love for these new digital banks and whether they be overseas banks like Simple or Monzo or whatever or whether they be local so, so what we've found is that people will wear a hat or a T-shirt, and people become advocates, and they just love up. They love the branding, they love what we stand for, they love our products, they love the usability. You don't get that sort of love for a traditional bank. So a lot of banks have talked in the past about trust hmm. and how they build trust with customers, and that that's the number one thing. Yep, and that's absolutely critical. But I think there's other elements now, like user experience, um, brand, um, you know, uh, rel- relationship, um, responsiveness. There's a whole bunch of other elements that make a bank, especially a new sort of digital neo-challenger bank, um, a more interesting proposition for, let's say, the next generation of tech-savvy people. Um, We have in our customer base people from 16 to 87. I think 87 was the oldest I saw. Right. There might be some people in their 90s. Wow. Um, but the predominant, like the, the largest group of our customers is sort of 18 to 22. Sure. And most of our customers are sort of under 30. Yep. And so what happens is those people, those generation, you know, next generation of consumers are not only younger, but they're more tech savvy and they have an expectation by using Uber or Airbnb or maybe Spotify or uh, WhatsApp or, or Facebook or whatever, they have an expectation of what a digital offering should be like. And even though we have the best digital offerings in the market from Bendigo and from the big four banks and so on in Australia, the, the digital offerings for internet banking and, and and for mobile banking are actually world class. Yep. Um so the bars a bit higher to meet in Australia. But that expectation outside of the banking industry, when you move into the Ubers or the Airbnbs or the Spotify's or whatever, yeah. it's totally different. Yeah. And so people's expectation is far in excess of what the banks today offer. Yep. And I think that's where an up can come along and launch a service that is just better, easier to use. Mm. Uh, fits into people's lifestyle easier, is something that people can grow to love and something that people can be passionate about and recommend to their friends.
1: Yep. And um, as a testament to to what the differences that you're offering, here's an example that I recently came across uh, in my own personal life. Um, I'm using one of the big four banks. I, I spent some money on a transaction and I was trying to figure out when and where I spent the money on, but I couldn't quite work that out because obviously the funds are clear and you know, although you spend money on the 21st of March, sometimes it shows on your statement as 23rd. Whereas what UP does is it gives users minute by minute clarity on when they've actually spent their money. And instead of using entity names, you use the actual business
0: name, um, so it's a lot more interactive and a lot more intuitive for someone to figure out what's I happening think, to their money. I think it's critical. So yeah. we actually look back. The journey started a long, long time ago. So so the merchant identification capabilities we have, I think, are world leading. Yeah. Um, but you know, we developed that technology in the Bendigo relationship for for the mobile internet banking system, and so that's been live in production for billions of dollars and hundreds of millions, maybe even billions. I don't know. Lots of transactions over the last five years. Yeah. And so that technology has taken a long time to develop. But what it means now is that when we launched up, we wanted to offer that level of transparency. We call that sort of merchant identification. Uh, you know we we provide time of day of transaction we show pending transactions as if they've already happened. Yep. And if you drill down into the transaction, you can see that it's currently pending. But we also record it against the date and time that it actually occurred. Yep. So when you walk into a McDonald's and you buy a burger and you, you tap your Apple Pay or your Google Pay or whatever, um, the time of the actual tap is what we will record on the transaction. Yep. We Of course, we record the settlement date and all the other things, but consumers don't care about that. Consumers no. actually think, okay, I can see the logo. I get a push notification immediately on purchase. Um, I can see maybe the address or the suburb where, where it was that I, I spent that money. Um, and I can see in the case of the afterpay relationship with what you know, we call smart receipts, I yep. can actually see what it was I purchased from the retailer. That's great. So we have these smart receipts that actually show you you know the SKU level data or the actual products that you bought from the retailer. So I think that level of transparency and that level of communication and customer experience is something that banks, even though in Australia they're sort of world leading, they've not really offered before. Yep. Um, and so I agree with you that that is something that um, has worked really well. But there's other things that you could, other examples like roundups. Like there's two banks in Australia I'm aware of that offer roundups, which means you go and buy something and if it's $2.70, it just sort of rounds it up to the nearest dollar, three bucks or whatever and puts the 30 cents in your saver. Yep. Um, and that's ING and up. Yep. And um, and obviously ING have been doing it for a little bit longer than us and do some great stuff and everything um, but with Up what we do is iterate and improve very quickly so when we launched that feature it's a great feature um, what we wanted to do is we wanted to make it so that people can redirect that money into maybe their um, particular thing they're saving for at the moment or whatever and in the future we'd like to people maybe can put it onto their home loan or put it into a charity and you know all those sort of things but also we, we, we experimented with different ways to save so I'll just give you an example right now um, you know you and I are living in the digital world but when we were younger or maybe when uh, the generation before us were younger, they had a piggy bank and they had coins in their pocket yep. and they would put those coins into the piggy bank and then when they were 20 or whatever, they'd smash it open and take the money out. Sure. Um, the, because we're living in a digital world, we made this little feature. It's like, it might appear to some as like a gimmick or whatever. It's just like you pull down to save. You just pull down and it saves your spare change. Yep. And if you've got no spare change, then it just saves a dollar. Wow. Um, and, and that became like a super addictive thing for, for our customers. And what we found is that people are saving an enormous amount of money through this sort of little mechanism. And what it's actually doing has been described sort of in the press or whatever, is that it's actually um, helping a whole new generation of of people to save their spare change in the digital world and to change their saving habits in a way that they sort of never knew was possible. Now, that's just a very simple, small feature, but that feature actually demonstrates how we're helping people to change their behavior and how we're delivering a different customer experience. Um, there is no other bank that we know of in the world that offers you that same feature. Yeah. So our view is if we can if we can launch these innovative features and these different features, then we can actually help people to change their behavior yep. and change the way that they live their life or save up for whatever it is they're saving up for or whatever. And, 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 and we, we even went so far as to cross out the word banking on our website. Wow. And instead of saying super-powered banking, we say super-powered living, living yeah. right? Because because what we care about is the outcome for the customer. And that little example I gave you about pool to save is literally changing the way that, tens of thousands of our customers are saving money yep uh, rather than you know saving the money in their pocket in coins and then going home and putting them into a piggy bank
1: yep that's great and i think one of the one of the simplest lines that you your companies come up with to describe how you're different from the other banks is that anyone can sign up for up in 3 minutes that's which right.
0: is which is crazy yeah, even better um uh, we, we, the way we describe it um, now i think is probably the um sort of the most apt way to describe it is that we're technology led banking yep. versus banking led technology yep that's and a it's a point. very subtle difference but um, I'll just give a couple of examples. We um, launched, you know, the first, I guess, material workload for a bank. So, you know, the first bank to be hosted in the cloud in Australia. Yep. Uh, and we did that with uh, with GCP and Google are really great partners of ours. Um, and, and what we're able to do there is that we can do, deploy an entire banking platform, like the entire up platform in 45 seconds. Wow. Um, and, and we can do a full regression test of the entire platform, which is every feature, across every platform, every operating system and every mobile phone, sort of different type of device and everything. And we can do all of that, not in months or weeks like a traditional bank, but in 26 minutes, which means we can do it twice in an hour, which means 50 times a day. So our goal was to release new software, like software updates to customers, um, uh, you know, five times a day was yep. our goal. And in November last year, we hit a, a peak of, of 10 times a day. Wow. And while we're sitting here today, our, our current average is six times a day. So if we're able to be technology-led banking, Rather than the banking-led technology, and we can use technology and automation and, and 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 tools and processes and systems to deliver new software updates to customers six times a day. Yep. Um, then it doesn't even matter when we publish our public roadmap, which we did recently. Yep. Um, all of our competitors can copy us, which they're they're doing anyway, but they just can't keep up with us. So I think that the being technology-led and then giving that practical example about what that means, it means that we can move really fast. It means that we can deliver on a world class uh, basis. It means that we can deliver a customer experience that others just can't even uh, can't even do, um, and we can deliver new features and new functionality just so much quicker than anybody else. So, so I think that ability to move uh, very quickly and, and have that agility and, and iterate and continually improve yep. is actually almost like the sort of the secret sauce. Like that's the main reason that Up will be competitive against the incumbent banks yep. is because they just can't keep up with us. Yep.
1: And um, going back to that as well, you mentioned publishing your roadmap publicly, and you call it the uh, the tree of Up. That's it. Yeah. Um, I've had a quick look at it, and it's actually pretty cool. You, you've actually road mapped your entire uh, product suite or the, the product that you want to release. So what's your thought process behind that? And um, I guess why also decide to take the transparent route with the, tr- the the tree of up and with your company in general?
0: Yeah, so I think uh, it goes back to the personality of the founders. Like it's, uh, Tomo and I are very transparent, and, 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 and you know, that's the way we operate. Um, but also our head of product, Anson, he's awesome. He's, he's sort of, a, I guess, he was our first you know employee or, or at least one of our first yep. employees been with us for a long time. Um, Anson, I call him our chief imaginer. Yep. Um, he's in charge of imagining the future of banking. Great title. And and so there's there's he he prefers uh, you know product lead or something, uh, product manager. But <laughs> but but no, uh, uh, I think um, uh, the the reason we talk about it in that way is that there's there's sort of there's three different sort of uh, considerations when we look at our product and what we communicate and how we build things. And one is all the feedback that we get from customers, and, and we build a mechanism in the Up app. For customers to give us direct feedback, sure. And up until very, very recently, Anson literally replied as the head of product. He replied to every single um, wow. idea that customers sent through. Now the volume is so much that we had to get the product team to help with that, and now we rotate across most of the team. But you still answer every um, email. But that comes we answer through. every single um, inquiry we have around ideas that our customers have for you know the future of banking. That's great. So that's one channel. The other channel is all of our stakeholders. So you know, in the relationship with Bendigo, uh, you got security, you got risk, you got compliance, you got regulators, and all this sort of stuff. And we have Mastercard, and we have Afterpay, and a whole bunch of it. Google and a bunch of different stakeholders. Um, so, so stakeholders have requirements and, and, and functionality and things that you have to do. And so you've got to consider those. And then there's this, this imagining, the future. And so, you know, whatever's in Anson's brain, and I love working with Anson on the product and there's yep. other people in our team. Dan is the head of design and so on. But there's a bunch of people in our team that sort of uh, work on what the future of banking is. If you take those three ingredients, the sort of future of banking is what we would say people don't know they want yet. Yep. Um, the ideas that you get from customers, which is what customers think they want, yep. you know, based on what they know from the incumbents. Um, and then you get your sort of stakeholders and everything. You have to manage the priorities across those three different things. You so in an answer, yeah. so an answer to your question is that in order for us to do that and do that in a transparent way we publish the tree of up and the tree of up is growing all the time. So we add new branches and new leaves to it all the time. If you click on one of those leaves, it'll actually give you an estimated delivery time frame. So it'll say it's coming in Q3 or coming in Q4 or whatever. Yep. And so that answers a lot of questions for our customers. So there's two things. One is being able to transparently communicate to the world what it is we're doing and sort of how we're doing it. And because the branches all link together and everything, you can actually see the logic on when people say to us, why did you build uh, merchant identification? Why didn't sure. you build BPAY? You can actually see that the merchant identification um, leads on to um, uh, identifying different transactions, which means you can have joint accounts and you can deliver joint accounts in a way that no other bank in the world does it. And then that leads on to the next thing, which might be small business accounts, you know, whatever. And yep. you can see that there's this logical growth through the branches of the tree. Yeah. And then you can see where they join up. And then it actually helps people understand why we choose those priorities. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that we get so many inquiries now from customers about when are you going to have BPAY or when are you going to have uh, joint accounts or when are you going to have whatever the next thing is that... But now people can actually self-service by going and looking at the tree of Up and finding out when is this going to come and 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 what are we working on? And it actually shows you with colors and, and different graphics um, what we've finished already, what we've delivered, yep. what we're currently working on, and then what's coming in the future.
1: Yep. So my last question for you is, you know, Up has had one of the most interesting growth stories. Um, in Australian startups. Um, you started, you, launch, you, you launched your product in October of 2018. And today you've got 30,000 customers with 50,000 accounts unless those numbers are out- outdated, which I, I'm sure they slightly bit out of aren't.
0: I think they were either January or February. But yeah. Yep. Yep. So what was your
1: strategy for growth? How did you decide on what path to take and uh, what advice would you have?
0: So I think um, uh, it goes back um, before the launch. Um, so a year before the launch, we had the internal uh, launch. Yep. And what we did is, uh, is we had a plan, which is, let's say, commonplace in Silicon Valley. You know, in San Francisco or in Palo Alto or whatever, um, you, you set up a new startup and you have a rapid growth plan and you go out there and you maybe raise some VC or whatever and, and you have all these different strategies to help grow your business and you're probably looking to grow your business before you're really looking to monetize it, yes. right? Um, now, w- we're we, we're not that bold that we're going to sort of launch a bank that's not profitable. Like our, sure. our goal is for it to be profitable, obviously, and we want every single customer, every single transaction to, to, to be profitable, and that's actually one of our key tenets. You know, we have these sort of um, um, key success measures that we agreed with our partners, uh, in, including Bendigo, um, and we work towards those success. and one of them is profitability. But um, when it comes to that growth model, what we realize is that most startups in the Valley would start with the founders using the product and then their family and friends using the product and then... All the people at Ferocia have been through this many, many times before at other startups. So um, so then you might go out for a public beta or you might go out for a private beta or, you know, and so on and so forth. And so we followed that path, which I, I mentioned earlier to yep. you. It's actually now become legislation as part of the restricted banking license. Interesting, right? The, the regulators are now saying that if you apply for a restricted banking license, you can only uh, release the product to your own staff to begin with and then you roll it out to your sort of family and friends and then you have a private um, beta and then you have a public beta and so on. So that's the path that we took. Now, the reason I mentioned that is that those 1,500 people that took part in that sort of first year of internal and a little bit of public testing? Um, they became a massive advocates for UP. And they essentially became our sales force. And because they loved it so much, they all went out and told people. And we built a little mechanism in up where you could sort of refer your mates or whatever. Um, and if out of those 1,500 people, if they each invited three people, well, then suddenly we got 5,000 or, you know, whatever. Um, and, and, and so that happened really quickly. Referrals and people just loving it and then telling their family or telling their mates or whatever has actually been the the best you know, and strongest way for us to grow, as it has been for other digital banks around the world. Right. Um, and then after christmas so we're sort of from october to christmas that's sort of how we were growing and then after we did a few events and things like that but then after christmas um, we started looking at social media and looking at um, social networks and looking at um, uh, digital advertising and all these sort of different things and it's as much about timing and and luck and fluke and and i I mean people will probably try and tell you how amazing they are and how smart they are and anything but we pretty much just experiment and try things yep and one of the things we tried was sort of pushing the message out onto some of the social networks from snapchat and instagram and, and 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 google and facebook and so on um and we had a lot of success um over the new year um leading into early january um and so by late january we were at least these numbers where we'd sort of signed up, you know, tens of thousands of customers and all this sort of stuff. Yep. Um, and a lot of that came through the referral channels, but also a lot of that came through the social networks. And the thing for me that was most fascinating is that if you put an ad out, like how do you sell a bank on Facebook or Snapchat. Like, it's 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 not going to happen, no, right? No, yeah. So if, if, if you're an incumbent, if you're one of the big four banks and you put an ad out on LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook or whatever, most people are going to ignore that crap. Like, they're yeah. just not interested in it. So how did we then engage with customers? We would engage organically. Like, our staff would do posts. We'd do a blog or whatever. We'd put information out there. And then, as a rule, on all the social networks, you can actually contact an up person directly. And so I try to reply to every single tweet. Uh, we've got uh, other staff members who reply to our Instagrams and reply to our Facebooks and, and Snapchats and so on. And 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 so you can contact the head of product, the head of design, um, you know, one of the co-founders, whatever, directly through social media. So what we found is we started developing a community there. And if I do a chat with you guys like this, and then we post a video or we post a you know a podcast or whatever, I'll put that out on social media, and then people engage with it we're going to get a lot more mileage out of that than we're going to get out of a digital ad per se. Yeah. But then when we started sort of advertising, because we've got this cool brand that we've developed and, and and an honest, transparent sort of ethos, people really engaged with it and people loved it. So if you combine those different things where you have the level of engagement with the actual founders and, 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 and sort of key people at the, at the organisation – and you start using these social networks to communicate and directly with customers, and then you bring in a little bit of advertising and you actually deliver content through podcasts, through videos, through all this sort of stuff. Um, what we found is that the growth almost takes care of itself. Yeah. Um, and it's not easy for me to explain how it happened because it's not easy to replicate, and I know a lot of people have tried to do it before. Um, but I know that we just got all the ingredients and the timing and everything right, um, and it's genuine. And I think that the it being genuine and being – Delivering a sort of honest, transparent view of what banking is. Like when we had an outage, we went out to social media and told everyone, and we sent a push notification to every single customer and said, "Look, um, one of our downstream service providers—you know, one of our service providers in the banking space—is having an outage, um, and it's going to affect you. And this is what's going to—this is what's going to happen. You're not going to—you're still going to be able to use your card or your Apple Pay or Google Pay. Um, You still can withdraw money from an ATM, but you won't be able to transfer money to your friends or you know whatever." That level of transparency on social media got us a lot of likes and a lot of comments and a lot of engagement where people said, holy shit, like a bank is being honest. Yep. They're telling it as it is. They're communicating. I think we did it every four hours or every two hours during the outage. Um you think that an outage would have a negative effect on your brand. It actually had a positive effect on our brand because we dealt with it in in a really passionate way. And it's because we're customers and we were affected just as much as anybody else. And so we wanted to communicate openly with customers and say, look, this is just the reality. This is what's happened. So I think if you put all those ingredients together, um, then that's how the growth happened so quickly and that's how it's continued. So the other number we released at the time was that Back then when we released those numbers, and it goes up and down, you know, we might have 100 or 200 customers one day, we might have 1,000 another day or whatever, but we were signing up sort of between, consistently between 500 and 1,000 customers a day. Wow. Um, And that would put us as, at the time, we were in the top five in the App Store and the Google Play Store and everything, but that would put us um, at about the third fastest growing bank in Australia. That's incredible. Uh, And obviously ComBank and and ANZ were the the two that are above us, but to be growing faster than sort of NAB or Westpac or Macquarie or ING or whatever, um, and they're just rough estimates I, mean, I don't have the exact numbers on those things um but it's pretty amazing uh and and it was it was a bit of a whirlwind um and and now what we're trying to do is we're trying to continue that obviously um but also uh scale the team so now like i said anson used to reply to all the ideas that customers yep. was in through but now it's not possible for one human to do that right yep. so 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 now we have to look at as we're growing so fast um how do we deliver the same level of awesomeness uh, you know with uh, we, such a small team
1: yeah absolutely and you know you've mentioned the word luck and serendipity multiple times but luck favors the prepared and you know it sounds like it's taken you 20 years to get to this point where all the ingredients are together you've created the right culture you've you've got the right relationships in place over decades of your work and now you're you're running a company that could change the face of banking in Australia, and you know you some someone might call it luck, but it, it really is preparation and years of hard work.
0: Yeah, no, I really appreciate you saying that. I mean, I think that's very insightful, and I think that's absolutely fact. I mean, you make your own luck. Yep, and that's why I say you know you the timing is everything. Um, and there's all the ingredients that you have to have. You have to have the capital. You have to have the people. You have to have the ideas. More than anything else, you have to have the execution. Yep. Um, and I think that some of the other areas, like the transparency and the product innovation and those other things, are all bonuses. Like they're awesome. Yep. Um, but yeah, you have to have all of those ingredients and. You will make mistakes and there will be challenges and you will stuff up. And so it's the way that you deal with those problems and the way that you deal with those challenges and learn from them that, that helps you to be successful.
1: And you've certainly done a great job at that, Dom. My last question for you
0: is if someone wanted to learn more about Up, get in touch with Up or sign up for Up, what should they do? I think sign up because if you sign up for Up, it's it, it's you can download it from the App Store or the Google Play Store. Yep. You can literally have an account in less than two minutes, and then you can have in less than three minutes you can have your Google Play, uh, your Google uh, Pay or your Apple Pay. And at the moment, it's only Apple Pay that yep. you can get set up instantly. Sure. Um, and other banks have had Apple Pay in Australia for for years, but being able to set it up in app instantly is awesome. Amazing. Yeah. And we're working with Google so we can do the same thing for Google Pay so that every, you know it's fair for everybody. We're not like favouring one particular platform. But if you can get set up in less than three minutes, and then yeah, what we do now is we, we provide 10 bucks for people who, who refer mates or whatever. Yep. So you can actually sign up and have money in your account. And I'll just tell you this. Our vision for UP in the very early stages when it was literally still on the whiteboard, you know, was that we wanted to make it so that people could uh, be lined up at the coffee shop and hear about up from their mate or see you know, a promotion in the coffee shop or whatever. And by the time they got to the front of the queue, they would be able to buy their coffee using their mobile phone. That was our vision. And now it's actually a reality. So there's no point, like, I mean, you can go read the website or you can have a you know catch up on Twitter or yep. Facebook or whatever. But all you have to do is download the app. It's free. And then actually you get money in your account to start with, go and spend it and see how awesome the merchant identification is. Try the pool to save uh, and just start using it and then just realize that there's a whole new revolution in making.
1: thank you dom for being on the podcast it's been great to have you here um yeah. hopefully we'll chat soon yeah, thank no you. worries thanks for having us it's been fantastic thank Bye you them. thank you for listening to people building businesses make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode you'll find us on apple podcasts spotify google podcasts and youtube if you want to get in touch with us for guest suggestions uh, if you want to get in touch with us for guest suggestions or feedback email peoplebuildingbusinesses at ybadventures.com. Thanks for listening.